Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Evoke Bike Podcast with James Piccoli. And this is a phenomenal one. James is a really smart guy. We're going to talk about his trajectory from local racing to becoming a world tour pro. And he really talks about how there's just this fairy tale told about talent, potential, and progression. And there's a lot more to it to become a professional athlete. And what benchmarks did he use during some years when he wasn't getting the race results, but you know, how does he define progress in that point in time? I think it's really awesome too to hear him and and his viewpoint on this obsession with watts per kg. He talked about resilience, learning through his training as a self-coach athlete all the way until he became a pro in the world tour about learning what didn't work and then finding what did work. And he talks a little bit about some of the intervals he likes to do, how he looks at making the training applicable to his racing and then what his general training philosophy is. At the end of the day, you can't have a big weakness and you need to minimize these. And he'll talk a little bit about how he does that. If you guys are listening on Apple, we would greatly appreciate if you could take 20 to 32 seconds out of your day and leave us a review if you think we deserve five stars. And please tell a friend about the podcast and interviews so more cyclists can use the knowledge that these amazing athletes are sharing with us to get better at whatever they're trying to accomplish on the bike. Hope you have a great week of training. We'll be back with part two later this week. Have a great day. And James, thank you. This is incredible. And so where are you now? I'm back at home, home, quote unquote, in Andorra. Okay. So I have uh, my residency here. For a couple of reasons, one of one of which is that right now it's actually one of the only places where I can get a visa um, mm. to live, and uh, which is quite useful. Um, but two is they actually they they really like uh, athletes here, and so they make it kind of easy to get residency, and and then I never have to worry about like renewing visas or anything like that, or or stressing about uh, work visas or anything, you know, because I'm was a Canadian resident resident until two months ago and uh you know people people can have problems with with getting turned around and borders and stuff if you don't have all your all your ducks in a row so now i should uh i should be good i'm sure that's somewhat of a complex process what's the long story short on that so it's like hey i'm on this world tour team i need to live somewhere in europe uh and or will welcome me and that's where i'm going so it's actually quite complicated it's something that like yeah. no one really because uh, it's 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 complicated for non-Europeans. So, in a nutshell, the problem is that let's say before now, I was a Canadian citizen working for an Israeli registered company in Europe. Uh, so, like, you know, no one knows what that is, and and like you're an athlete on top of all that, so like you're you're technically working all over the world, you know, so it's anyway, it's a big mess. Um, but Andorra has this system for high level athletes. Um, so it's like, there's like 60 guys here now, 60 world tour guys here. Okay. Um, they just make it easy to get residency, uh, if you're a foreigner and then you don't have to worry about coming in and out of Europe. Okay. I see. I didn't even know about Schengen and like I went, uh, I was getting my master's in upstate New York, actually close to where we raced. And, uh, I was going over to Belgium for like 
three months. And I'm like, oh, this is sick. I'm going to go for like 120 days, get all everything set up, Airbnbs, tickets. And someone's like, dude, you got 90 days. And I was like, wait, what? And so yeah. I had to go. I mean, it was a great thing that I quote unquote had to do. I, I went to Croatia and then I went to Scotland to get out and come back in. And yeah. it just quickly became sort of a sticky situation. So I can only imagine what that's like when you're racing, training, trying to be like, like you said, a Canadian working for yeah. an Israeli team in Europe. That's wild. Yeah. Well, dude, thank you for doing this. Um, been, been following your path. And uh, if we could, maybe I kind of want to jump into some racing things first and then do some training stuff. And then if we have time, just uh, a couple questions on like nutrition and mindset. Um, and sure. if that sounds good to you. Whatever you think is interesting. I do. Well, I, well, this is going to be super interesting. So I can't remember when I started seeing your name, but I think your progression for any athlete that's going to watch this, that's like trying to get to your level or even taking it down a step in athlete like myself. So come up, you know, category five through through one, one's where I'm going to be. I'm going to be an amateur. But when athletes start to get to that like cat three, cat two level, when everyone's getting closer in competition and you start going to like bigger regional races, I think a lot of people get shook. Like they're the big fish in their town. Then they go and get 50th at like cat skills or some race. And they're like, oh, wait, I'm, I'm actually not that good. And I'm really like, as I started looking back through your results and kind of your trajectory, I want to hear how you sort of see things. And maybe I have this. I'm looking back. I'm like, holy crap. I raced James in 2011. You were 19 years old. Uh, Hugo Huell won that race, which was yeah. like <laughs> badass. Um, so I started looking through and I want to more like humanize you to other athletes so they can get motivated by your path. Like you've put, it's not like you were this 19 year old kid who went to green mountain and won everything. Like yeah. you clearly took some knocks and that's not a diss, but just so like athletes can hear like, Everyone sees you now on the podium at Rwanda. They're like, oh, dude, James is doing Vuelta last year. You already yeah. won a race this year. Like, they see all the amazing things that you're doing now, but I don't, it's easy to forget all the freaking work you've put in. Yeah. So I look back and you're tw like 21 to 24, let's say in the 2012 to 14 range, you're doing races like Green Mountain, Killington. You're not smashing people, you're not showing up and just riding away from guys. But you're doing good enough that you, you get a pro contract with Amora Vita in 2014. And then you go to Elevate in 2017. But if people look back, like you might have been riding for guys in 2015, 2016, but you're getting like your mid-pack at Gila. Maybe again, you're riding for somebody else. But mm -hmm. you're like, what was your process? Because then it seemed like, and I could be wrong, this 2017 something clicks. You're top 10 at Alberta, third at Snow Basin in Utah. 2018 now your top tens at colorado classic like you're coming into your own it seems like as a outsider looking back can you kind of walk us through that process of i mean it's a it's a endurance sports it's a grind it's putting in that work day after day but how do you see that as the athlete that we only see you now as like holy crap is james Ficoli? yeah um yeah so i think you you nailed it on the head and it's 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 very much a western thing North America in particular has this obsession with, with talent, potential, and progression. So, and it's like, it's almost like a fairy tale. You know, it's like, it's, it's like, 
it's it's this romantic idea that you try something for the first time and you're amazing at it and like that's how you know that that's what you're meant to do you know it's almost like uh like the prince charming story like there's one there's one person um there's one woman one man for you out in the world and like when you find them you know and it clicks and that's it's perfect mm-hmm. it's a very romantic idea that that like that as that's what talent is because it's a very easy um concept to understand you know like you're either good at something or you're not um in my experience with professional cycling and a lot of other aspects of my life and and a lot of other athletes that i see coming up it's essentially the complete opposite um so at 21 effectively um i was a cyclist i wasn't particularly good i just enjoyed riding my bike and um i enjoyed going to school almost not at all and i decided one day and i used the word decided on purpose that i was going to be a professional cyclist um i didn't know how i was going to do it i didn't know the path i didn't know what i needed to do i didn't know you know i had a rough idea of the work that was going to be involved and and kind of some rough steps but i had no idea of i had no plan but i said you know what i'm going to train and i'm going to dedicate myself over the next however long it's going to take and i'm going to be a professional cyclist because that's what i want to do um because i enjoy it I, I like riding i like training and and that's when the journey started you know so so was i good when i first started cycling not really you know like uh i enjoyed myself i trained i loved training i loved the process of improving um which means, you know, like working hard for small gains, uh, you know, the process of getting better, of learning, of training, of, of dialing in nutrition and, and everything I need to do to, to become a better cyclist. Um, what and are so benchmarks along the way that you use to see progression? Because sometimes it's, it's hard to explain this to athletes, like especially when an athlete, let's use a classic example of 20-minute power. They yeah. might not be able to really conceptualize at first in their first year or two of training, like, okay, I'm doing X watts, but then they can do X watts twice. That's not as cool as if they can go tell their friend they can do X plus 20 watts, but X doing X twice is just as good. The repeatability, what kind of things were you using along your way? Like, Hey, I'm actually, I'm getting better at this. Or was it just so, race results maybe? So that's actually the, the most interesting part of my story. So when you, when you went through my, my kind of my progression, uh, there's a big gap in between 2014 and 2017. There's three years where you're like, well, you know, what's going on. And essentially in those three years, what was happening was that I was doing all this work to get better, all this training, all this reading, all this racing as much as I could. Um, but measuring that progress was very difficult. And I kind of had to have faith that what I was doing would pay, but it's not always easy to measure that. Mm-hmm. And, and a, a big part of that, like I said, is just faith, it's just blind faith that if you continue to work at something that you're going to get better. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult when, when externally it doesn't seem like it's their improvement. So you said the, I didn't really have any results there. Mm-hmm. Um, during three years of, of, of dedication and hard work and essentially 100% commitment to cycling. And 
you know, not to be, to be pretty blunt, like you have nothing to show for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the period in my, in my second career that I'd like to, if you use the analogy of like a plant growing, you know, they, they say the first, whatever, three, the first three years of like a tree is all the roots growing mm-hmm. and you don't see anything from the surface. And it's very easy to say like, Oh, I, I'm watering this plant and, and I'm feeding it and fertilizing and all this stuff. And there's nothing showing like what's going on. And those are all the roots growing. So that's, that's the whole base of where I learned to be resilient, um, where I learned to be um, self-sufficient, where I learned to dial in my training, like all, all the things that you actually need to be a professional athlete that, that aren't the sexy things there. It's not what's per kilo. It's not the race results. All, all the, the character traits you need to be a professional athlete. I developed in those three years. Um, and a lot of that was because of struggles, you know, the, the struggles of not finding a team, not being able to find a team or, or not getting race results for whatever reason, or, you know, having nothing to show for all the work that I put in. Um, all the struggles that come along with the journey that, that, that period of my second career was, was essentially where I became a professional athlete, but not in the, not in the sexy way that everyone, you know, like, Oh, he, he, he beat all these guys. And that's when he showed he was like really ready. Like that happens before, you know, it's not just, again, that's like a romantic kind of Hollywood movie thing, but in reality, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of struggle. Um, it takes a lot of failure um, and it takes the mental skills to, to, to keep at it despite, you know, everything externally telling you to call it quits. Dude, uh, if, if I did outtakes, that's the outtake right there, man. You just like <laughs> drop the Bible on people's face. I love it, James. What are, what, so I have a few questions for that. What you had mentioned the training and reading, what things were you reading that helped you grow into this athlete that you've become? Um, I mean, essentially 24 hours of my day since I decided that I was going to be a professional cyclist, I devoted to improving my craft. Um, so what do I read? I read studies, uh, physiology. I read uh, books on leadership and uh, I read, you know, books on other athletes to see their paths. Um, I read, uh, I, always, I, I read stuff with the goal of, of being a better athlete by the end of the book. So there's lots of stuff you can read, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. even just, just reading about another athlete's journey, like a bio, like a, just a good biography. Um mm-hmm. And seeing that, like I said, the reality of most people's stories is, is struggle and failure. Like you, you only see them when they're winning races or, or having success in whatever sport it is, because that, that's the nature of professional sport. But you don't see the, the 10 years, the 10,000 hours of, of struggle and failure before that. Dude, um, so true. So true. So so yeah everything read everything from i i really like reading about physiology i um essentially until i got to the world tour where you're mandated to have a coach i never had a coach um i did all my training myself um so i read about training physiology about the science about uh uh, different methods uh tried them out uh learned what worked for my body, what, uh, worked nutritionally training wise. Um, 
again, just, just doing everything I could to, to improve on, in my craft, you know, um, beyond the, the, the sexy things of what's tequila. Everyone's obsessed with what's tequila now. But just... Yeah, dude. Thank oh. you. But <laughs> you know, people can talk about it, but I think it was uh, like Cyrus Monk was on here, the Australian U23 national champion. He was like, it's just people don't talk about what can they do at the end of a four hour road race, which is what really matters. And I, I love metrics. I love the power meter. I just think sort of kind of what you said before of we're in this culture too, where it's like, well, here's your 16 week plan to boost your FTP. And that's, that's training. I'm like, Oh, just oh. guys. Like it's not that easy. If it was that easy, everybody would be amazing. Like it's this lifestyle that you have to embrace. If you really yeah. want to become your best self, whether someone's trying to become a pro or if somebody wants to, you know, go from the B group on the local Tuesday night ride to the A group, like, you know, and with, you know, I think social media is great. I love it, but it's so easy for us to look at the graphs of the other person. I'll hear athletes be like, Oh, well, I saw so-and-so did this 20 minute test. I can't do those watts. Like I'm going to lose this race. And I'm like, wait, do you really think a 20 minute <laughs> test is going to be determined of the race? I know a lot of really fast people that suck at bike racing. Um, it's too, too core. Uh, Justin Williams was like, Oh, just so people understand, like there's Watts. And then there's this thing called bike racing. Like they both yeah. matter in the results yeah. sheet. So speaking of results, which ones are you the most proud of? Oh, which ones am I the most proud of? Um, I get, uh, tour of Utah 2019 mm -hmm. was, was the result I was the most proud of. So I, I won the prologue and I finished second overall. And, um, Remember when I alluded to those three years where I didn't really have much going on externally mm -hmm. at the end of those three years, what essentially brought me out of those three years was uh, a call on my phone um, that I didn't know. I didn't know who was calling me. It was an unknown number, which I never answered by the way. Um, but this time I decided to answer. And it was a guy by the name of Paul Abrahams who runs LA pro cycling. And, um, he said to me, you know, I've been, I've been watching you, you know, I've seen races. I really believe in you. Um, we just got invited to the tour of Utah. So this was like halfway through the season for, mm -hmm. um, I'd love for you to come to the tour of Utah. And of course I'd heard the tour of Utah and I was almost in disbelief. You know, <laughs> I almost didn't believe that he was going to the race because I knew it was a big race. Um, and I'm like, of course, I'd like, are you sure? First of all, are you sure you're going to the Tour of Utah? Second of all, of course, I'd love to go to the Tour of Utah. Uh, and he said, okay, great, because I really see you winning that bike race one day. He said that to me essentially before I joined the team. And so to go through that whole journey with him and that team and essentially for that to come true, I, I, I won the prologue. Um, had the yellow jersey and finishing second overall, but that was just such a, a full circle moment. Um, because literally, the, you know, the first conversations I had with him, he was like the first kind of director to believe in my ability. Mm -hmm. uh, first, first external person in cycling to, to believe in me. And he said uh, that I could win the tour of Utah and I and really nearly did. Was that more motivation or pressure when he told you that? Cause I mean, this is like a big call at that moment for you. Honest, honestly, at that point, I kind of didn't believe him. Um, 
so it was neither um because it was almost like okay the man like you don't you know that's that's a big ask <laughs> and at, at, that, at that point i didn't even see it for myself you know because because um I, I had a very kind of bumpy path um to get to that point and and no one really in in cycling had believed in me besides myself um and so, so to have someone say that was almost like i almost like brushed it off like ah sure you know um, there was neither how, how do you keep that belief you know when it is you have that period of years or to the other cyclist that's going to watch this it's going and they're getting 40th and 50th it's like ah maybe i'm just not that good at it how do you find that belief is it going back to the continue to work hard improve your craft find another way to get better whether it's each book or each training ride and you just have to slog onward yes so yes is the answer to that question you just have to keep going um but recognize that i mean even i came pretty close to quitting um so before before i got that call that i just told you the story about mm-hmm. uh, i had really no team uh, no measurable forward progress in cycling you know and i had been working for uh, three or four years you know mm-hmm. um and so even for me it got to the point where like you know i wasn't making any money cycling uh, I invested three to four years of my life, a hundred percent into something and externally I had nothing to show for it. And so I think what athletes have to recognize is that almost everyone gets to that point where they're like, you know, maybe this is not going to work out. You know, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I don't have the talent, whatever it is. Um, you know, and maybe it's just, maybe I got to do something else. And that's okay because every athlete has that moment. You know, I read literally two days ago or yesterday um, about Taco Vanderhorn who won the stage of zero. And mm-hmm. he said, uh, I almost quit cycling last year, you know, cause didn't have a contract, um, you know, and, you know, figured that was, that was it for me, you know, figured that I, I'd done what I needed to do. Didn't work out, you know, and then goes and wins the stage of zero a year later. Um, so it's, I, I'd say to those people who are, who are going through that um, experience that, you know, everyone, I've had that, you know, uh, and plenty of other, almost every other successful athlete has had that moment, you know, and, and I genuinely think the only, the only skill that I have genuinely is, is like resilience, like I, I, I don't think I'm particularly talented genetics wise. I don't think I'm have any special gifts for cycling. To be honest, I've just haven't given up. I've just mm-hmm. continued to go, um, and I've continued to try and get better every day. And that's the only reason why I'm I'm here now. Um, yeah. Stephen Bassett called himself the cockroach that cycling can't kill, and I think it's you guys that just keep going back and you take knocks and. Yeah. You know, I always wonder when athletes that uh, it's really funny that you bring this up as I was looking back through roadresults.com and I'm looking through your old amateur results and I'm seeing names from, so I was in Rochester. So I'm seeing old Canadian names that used to come down guys in the Northeast. And I'm like, man, that dude was such a hitter. Like I really looked up and like respect that person. 
they quit in 2014. So-and-so quit in 2013. And I'm always wondering, like, did they just lose the love and they just decided like life took them elsewhere, which is cool. Or was it like they kind of got stagnant and started doubting their progression and were just like, meh, I'm good. And cause I, I yeah, I mean, it, it's very interesting to think of on a, I guess macro scale when people zoom out and look at the forest, it's, we all do hit that. Uh, a teammate of mine really got me re-motivated. I kind of was in upstate New York doing the same races. I sort of, I'm like, God, do I, is my life going to be cycling? Like I, all my friends know me as like the cyclist and uh, just kind of kept truck along and then moved to Tennessee, reignited some gravel kind of got me excited roads kind of making a different resurgence. And you find your, way back into it everyone finds their own different lawrence tendam was talking about it it's mm. really interesting to hear you bring that up i almost want to start asking people that question like have you ever felt like cycling maybe was you were at your end point um that's interesting man i appreciate you sharing that and being candid kind of with the journey if and, and the last comment on this racing like to highlight it you win Gila in 2019, which is a massive win for maybe it wasn't your number one uh, result that in your mind, but someone should look back and see what you're doing in 2015 and 2016. And it's a totally different cyclist. And that's so freaking motivating, dude. Like just to see a guy like you putting in the work and coming out with, I mean, anybody that wants to be a climber knows what Gila is and knows what a beast that thing is. Um, it's freaking incredible, James. Um, so self-coaching, let's talk about training a little bit. Cause I know athletes mm-hmm. and watches are super interested in what other people are doing. What did your training consist of as you're coming up? Let's maybe, let's look at it maybe two ways, 2015 to 2017. And then has, have things changed now if you, or, well, you kind of went world tour from elevate. Uh, I was going to ask you, you early versus you later then versus you with a coach. Okay. So. Me early um, was essentially trying everything, trying every style of training, um, reading about training, just kind of figuring out what worked for me, mm-hmm. what worked for my body. Um, and in saying that, essentially, it's making mistakes. You know, like learning what didn't work is actually yeah. the way it worked. Yeah. So you, so I tried a whole bunch of stuff. Um, what are some of those things what are some of those things that didn't work for you not that we're knocking anything but just what wasn't for james um so when i when i first got onto a kind of team with uh i don't want to call him coach he was anyway i was it was recommended that i do like uh low cadence drills um and like specific heart rate targets just kind of like a very old school European kind mm-hmm. of training. Um, didn't work for me. And especially didn't work for my brain because I'm a pretty analytical and, and you know, data driven guy. And, um, you know, if you don't explain why I'm doing something, I have a really hard time, um, you know, taking it on board. So, he, so this particular guy was just saying, oh, do it because that's what the Euros do, you know? And, you know, where I'm someone who's like, I want to hear about the pathways and, you know, like the studies and like, explain to me why this works. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, tried a whole bunch of training styles. I ended up, um, which I still use today. I find for me, the most effective method of training is, is polarized training. Mm-hmm. Um, so to 
brief descriptor of what that is, it's either you ride very, very easy or very, very hard. And obviously you do most of your riding very, very easy. Um, Can you define easy for somebody if they're like, oh, I want to try this now? Easy is... So the, the problem I see 98% of people making is that easy is really medium and hard is medium. Um, so easy, when I say easy, it's like, like being able to have a conversation with someone and just like enjoying being outside. And we got a lot of data people. So I'm going to add, so like yeah. six, 65% FTP cruising. Yes. Even less. Like I, okay. I, I don't know, 200 between 200 and 250 Watts for me. Okay. Uh, which is really just like, like you can ride with normal people who are not racers, you know, and, and you're not making them suffer. You know, there's this, which I wish it would stop this. I don't know what even the right word is trope that like cycling is linked with endless suffering. Um, and somehow that's like noble and good. Uh, and while there's a place, there's a place and time to push yourself. Like it shouldn't be all the time. And you don't need to suffer all the time to get better. Um, I also to add, to add onto that as my own thing that that yeah. every cyclist that's trying to make it is making sacrifices. And I'm like, dude, you're riding a bike. You're making choices yeah. to try and become a pro athlete. Like, oh, dude, just drive yeah. something in me. I'm like, you're not sacrificing. Please, you're not yeah. a martyr. <laughs> no, no one oh. forcing you to do this. Right. That's, that's different. Set like actual suffering. I'm sure if you look up the definition is, is you don't choose when it starts and ends, you know, like if someone has a disease, they're suffering, you know, you're using discomfort to increase your fitness. It's the same thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. But anyway, so yeah. Uh, so that's the easy. And that's then above 400, 400, 400 to end up. Um, what types of se- sorry, I'm going to be super micro on this. What kind of sessions would those be like, you know, 400 and up is a big range for people. Are you doing like six by three minutes? Are you do? are you mixing it up? Are you doing 30 on 15 off? It really, so I, I try and as much as I can, and this is, I'll allude to this when you say later, James, like world tour now. Um, but when I have time to fully prepare for an event, Mm-hmm. Um, I try and tailor a little bit to the, to the needs of the event. Um, okay. so for example, I would look at a course like tour of the Gila and I would say, you know, where am I likely to, to make the difference in terms of time on GC, you know, so you have whatever it was, a, a 15 minute climb to, to Mogollon. Um, you have a time trial, which is about, 30 minutes of, of kind of rolling hills. And then you have a hard last day with a long climb, medium climb, long climb, and then short climb at the end. And so I'll take those like kind of those, those efforts that I need to be good at and I'll find a way to, to kind of sharpen for that. So let's say if I want to be good for a five minute climb, um, I'll train, you know, a little bit less than five minutes. So my intervals will be a little bit less than five minutes and then also just a little bit more. Um, so you hit both sides of, of 
that power bend. Um, if you're doing a longer climb, then you're doing more kind of around threshold. Um, so you, again, you want to do a little bit more than that and a little bit less than that. And you want to do, you know, a situation where you have attacks. So you have little peaks, um, and there's a lot of ways to do that. You can do, like you said, micro intervals, 30 seconds. You can do steadier with little sprints. You can, there's, there's a lot of ways, you can, mm-hmm. uh, but essentially the way I look at training, my general training philosophy is less it's like developing skills you know if if you ask a violinist like how do you get better at violin um they're gonna say well you need to practice the songs you're gonna play you need to practice scales you need to practice this and that and playing for long like for for whatever reason cyclists have become obsessed with ftp mm-hmm. and they think that it's this that FTP determines your worth as a cyclist and your strength at every like type of effort and every race situation and all that. When in reality to get results at a bike race, you have to have skills. Um, and some of those skills are, are power for a certain amount of time, whether that's short sprints, whether that's accelerating out of corners, whether that's short climbs, um, steep climbs, long climbs, going fast on a flat out of a corner in a criterion. Like these are all skills that you need to do. You need to work on to improve at your craft. Um, and that's my general training philosophy. Like I said, the, the, the thing that tends to work for me the most is, is polarized training. Um, but in reality, most of my, the way I think about training is, is, is developing skills. Um, and in developing skills, would you say like variation in those skills so that you don't have a massive hole in your armor? Like you don't want to be a 10, 10, 10, and then a two yeah. at something, be a nine, nine, eight, and seven. Is that sort of accurate? Yeah. So that's, that's another part of my experience that I wish I could share with, especially people coming up from North America. Cause this is like a, and it's mainly because obviously a lot of guys don't have experience racing in Europe, but there's this fallacy that you have to decide what kind of bike racer you are and you're good at climbing. So you're a climber or you're good at sprinting. So you're a sprinter or you uh, are a time trialist or whatever it is. Um, Because you see that in the grand tours and you figure like, okay, if I'm racing North America, I have to pick like the kind of specialty too. And then I'll develop into that. Um, But when you learn, when you get to, Europe and you actually start racing good bike racers is you learn that everyone here is good at everything. Nobody has any weaknesses. Um, and if you have a weakness, whatever it is, it's going to get exposed and you're going to get buried for it. Um, so even the, the purest climbers that you see like in, in, in the grand tours can ride really fast on the flat and they can sprint, um, and they can descend you know, and they can do everything they need to do to, to minimize their weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's, a the reason why I'm saying is because people get into this, you know, into this belief system that they need to be a climber and, Oh, I don't need to work on my sprint because I'm, I'm going to do well in the climbing races and I'm going to be a climber. Um, but to be honest, to make it out of North America, 
And to make it as a bike racer in Europe, you need to be good at everything, you know, everything. So I know it sounds ridiculous to say, if you want to win Gila, you need to also be able to like mix it up in sprints. Um, but it's true. And that's the way you're going to get to the next level in, in Europe, because as soon as you have weakness in Europe, it's exposed and people take advantage of it. Dude, it's, you got to try and become bulletproof and it's, you know, you, and this is, this is such a good podcast, James. Um, okay, everybody that does it for part one with James Piccoli. Definitely come back later this week and stay tuned for part two as we just dive more into training, more into all the nitty gritty. James is clearly a super smart guy that has assessed a lot about his capabilities, weaknesses, how to address them. And I think he really drops a lot of gems that we can all use to our own training and racing to become a better athlete. So James, thank you for part one. We will talk to you all soon. Have a great day.